BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, welcome back to the Sports Media Watch podcast. This is John Lewis along with Drew Lerner. If you have not already, please subscribe to the SMW podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's jump right into the topics of the week. We'll start with Wimbledon. Carlos Alcaraz's five-set win over Novak Djokovic on Sunday was the most watched Wimbledon men's final in four years since Djokovic beat Roger Federer in five sets. And other than that, the most watched since 2012. Obviously, a lot of talk about the changing of the guard. Alcaraz is 20 years old, winning his second major, defeating Djokovic in a match where Novak won the first set 6-1, pretty dominant. Uh, Could easily have wilted. He wilted in the French against Novak, but came back and won in five. In fact, took third set 6-1. So uh, uh, pretty impressive stuff. And obviously, if you're in the sport of tennis, you you need as many stars as you can get. The Americans are not going to fill that void anytime soon uh, on the men's side it doesn't seem like i mean obviously tiafo you know taylor fritz they've had their moments but uh, I, I would say there's no shame in lacking faith in the american side uh, when it comes to tennis so if alcaraz becomes the next big thing that'll be great if you can get another you know dominant superstar out of this sport and uh hopefully you'll get a rival of some sort along the way because Novak can't really be his rival given the age gap but uh, pretty impressive uh, for Alcaraz and pretty impressive numbers too. Uh, also viewership was up for the women's final not quite at the same level obviously you're talking the difference between over 3 million for the men and barely over 1 million for the women but given the combatants you're talking about uh, Marketa Vondrasova not a well-known player at all uh, and then Anz Jabor, who is more well-known and is, was in her third Grand Slam final in the past year. But again, not a big name, obviously, on the women's side. You know, out, out of the few stars you had left in the second week, you would have wanted Pegula, even Zvitolina with her story uh, with Ukraine, certainly Swiatek, uh, you know, Sabalenka. There's any number of, of, of players they would have preferred, any number of matchups they would have preferred to the one that they got. So the fact that viewership increased for that, even if it's at a low level, uh, certainly not a bad thing if you're ESPN. 
Yeah, um, certainly a great thing on the men's side uh, to see Djokovic go down, not as, you know, a Djokovic hater or anything, but it's just great to see a new name out there. Um, and obviously Alcaraz has proven that he certainly can be one of those superstars that tennis is going to need in the future here. I, I do think, you know, it, it's not like we've seen much of a drop off in Djokovic's play. So I think there still could be like a, a couple good years to milk out of an Alcaraz Djokovic rivalry. Um, it was unfortunate in the French a few months ago where, um, you know, Alcaraz was pretty noticeably injured during their match, which I, th- I think really put a damper on it. So I thought it was, it's actually probably pretty big for the sport that, um, that he was able to come back and win Wimbledon, uh, especially in the fashion he did in five sets. Uh, of course, especially for the American audience, when you get to that fifth set in tennis, that is going to do wonders for the viewership that goes later in the day. You get the momentum built on social media, people hearing about it, tuning in for the end. So uh, I, I think that all really, uh, really helped juice the number for, for ESPN. But overall, I mean, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful final for, for the men's side. Yep. Uh, I will say that uh, the full tournament was up 7% year over year uh, and uh, obviously up uh, more dramatically than that over 2021. And uh, obviously not at the level of 2019 when you had Federer and Serena make the finals, but that era is gone. So in the era that we're in now, I think you take it. So for ESPN, I guess you'd say a successful fortnight uh, and uh, probably the most notable event of the weekend from a ratings perspective, with all due respect to the Gold Cup. So um, so we had some reporting from New York Post, Chad Finn. Chad Finn of the Boston Globe uh, seems to think ESPN is leaning towards Doris Burke, Doc Rivers, and Mike Breen as a three-man crew for ESPN's top NBA team. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then maybe touch on uh, the other rumors for you know, J.J. Redick or Richard Jefferson. Well, you're not going to build I mean, the same chemistry. I don't see any universe where you're going to have Breen, Doc, and Doris, if that's what they end up with, tremendous chemistry. Doc is coming back into broadcasting for the first time since 2004. It was Doc and Al Michaels or Brad Nessler, two-man booth. You go back to when he worked for TNT. It was Doc and Vern Lundquist or, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe Bob Neal or something, two-man booth. I don't know that Doc has ever worked in a three-man booth before. Bringing him back after 20 years just to put him into a three-man booth is crazy. So uh, if it's going to be Doc, it's got to be Breen and Doc. That's it. You go with a, a, a two-person booth. Uh, if it's going to be Doris, then I think maybe Richard Jefferson. I would give Jefferson the nod over Reddick because uh, you know he's worked really well with Syracuse Doc before. So you do have to make sure that when you make the move, of putting a female analyst on your number one team and a finals team that you have the opposite of what you had on Sunday Night Baseball, where Jessica Mendoza is sitting next to the most talkative man on the planet, and it doesn't work, right? So you do have to factor that kind of thing in, and I think that gives Richard the lead there. Do I think any of these booth ideas would be an improvement over Breen Van Gundy and Jackson? Yeah, I think Breen and Doc Rivers would, but that's me Again, remembering how good Doc was 20 years ago. Who knows if Doc's going to be as good now? But if you're going to bring in Doc, it's got to be in a, in a two-person booth. I, I don't think, uh, no matter who the partner is, 
that you bring Doc Rivers out of a 20-year hiatus when he's, to my knowledge, never worked in a three-man booth before, and all of a sudden you, you have him bouncing off of another partner. The reason Breen Van Gundy and Jackson worked is because Jackson is so kind of morose sounding. He, he, you need to have an energetic person next to him. Uh, and the fact that Van Gundy and Jackson are, seem to be really close friends and had their association during the league, that's a big part of it. Steve Jones and Bill Walton worked. They had great chemistry. You know, uh, you can't just plop two people together and expect chemistry out of it. So is it safe to say that that Jackson's out. He, he's he's done on the on the A team for for ESPN because all of these reports that we're seeing do not include Jackson. And you know, going back to last week when we were talking about this, I I thought there's no way that they would continue to pay Jackson his his A team salary and and have him relegated to to another broadcast team. So, but it seems like that's the way they're going. Yeah, I mean, like I said a couple of weeks ago, you can't have Jackson there by himself or with a different partner. He's not at that level in terms of an analyst. He needs to be with the right people. You know, there are certain players in the NBA, like Draymond on the Warriors works. Go put Draymond on the Indiana Pacers and see what, you know, see what he's got, right? And some players work with a certain core. And Mark Jackson is an analyst who works with a certain core. So uh, they could put him in the studio easily. Like I said before, he was a studio analyst before he was a game analyst. Put him in the studio, put him with Mark Jones on a secondary team, particularly if you're going to elevate Doris, putting Mark Jones and Mark Jackson together. You know, we'll see what happens. I, I, I would go with Breen and Doc together, number one team. Uh, I think that would be really good. You know, I, I, I don't think Breen, Doc, and a third person is as good as just Breen and Doc. You know, I'm interested, John, as as you mentioned, you know, it's been about 20 years since Doc Rivers has been in a booth. When we talk about like NFL booths, for instance, we always hear about who the all-stars are in the production meetings. Mm -hmm. um, it, are there similar meetings during NBA, during the NBA regular season where, you know, the, the coaches are sitting down, the players are sitting down with the production crew, with the broadcasters? And they're being kind of evaluated by by the the production team as potential talents in the future once their careers come to an end one way or the other. I would be curious to see if, if Doc has kind of continued to impress in that type of atmosphere. Well, I think, you know, one, they do obviously do their their meetings. Obviously, being a former coach, Doc has built relationships. First of all, the coaches in the NBA are not accountable to anybody. They're always so put upon, you know, they're, they're, they're the sainted figures benighted, right? And uh, so Doc is going to go in there and he's going to tell every coach that he meets that they're the greatest thing ever. And they're going to tell him that he's the greatest thing ever. And they'll gas each other up. I'm sure the same thing was happening with Jeff Van Gundy. I don't think that will, will be a big change on that front. Now meeting with players, I do actually think that could be a thing because there are generations now of fans and players who they don't respect him as a coach. Some of these people have played for him and they, they have, you know, certain beef with him. Van Gundy didn't have that. Van Gundy, his players always knew he would fight for them because he literally fought for them hanging on to Alonzo Mourning's leg, right? Uh, Doc, on the other hand, has kind of sold players out routinely, uh, has had no qualms about putting the failures of, of postseason disasters at the feet of players and not really taking uh, responsibility himself. 
again, it's not really that unique among coaches in the NBA, uh, but it's something where I do think he could have maybe a little bit of difficulty getting players to talk to him in a, in a more honest way or relating with them. All right, John, to close this topic out, let me give you the rumored names and you'll give me a percent chance that they end up in the top booth for ESPN next season. Let's, uh, let's start with Doc Rivers. What do you think, percentage-wise, the chances that Doc Rivers will end up next to Mike Breen? I'd say 60%. Uh, and the reason that might seem a little low is we don't really know if Doc's going to go into TV. The reality of the matter is TV is work. If you've got enough money to not work, you're probably not going to work, right? So uh, I think 60%. All right. What about Doris Burke? 80, 90%. I'd say 90%. I think this has been something that he's been building toward for years. The only reason that he didn't get that number one job before was because Jeff and Mark were so uh, entrenched in those roles. So I would say uh, 90%. It's very confident. All right. uh, Richard Jefferson. Um, Richard isn't on get up enough and, uh, or, or first take. So, uh, I'm going to go 20%, 20%. And then JJ Reddick or any other long shot pick, um, that, that you think has an outside shot at uh, ending up in the top booth. I think Reddick's got a better chance than Richard Jefferson. He's on get really? up. He's on first take. This is the Dave Roberts show. That's ESPN's NBA coverage, right? So if you're on first take and you're on get up, you're going to have an advantage. I would say Reddick, 50%. Seriously. You think you think it's a coin flip that JJ Reddick is going to be in ESPN's top booth next season? Doc Rivers, Doris Burke, JJ Reddick, and Richard Jefferson. Only one of those people is a regular on the prized ESPN shows, where if you're on those shows, they'll give you opportunities whether you've earned them or not. So J.J. Reddick, to me, he's the only one out of that group that qualifies over there in Bristol. And I I think uh, maybe 50% does seem a little high. I'll go uh, 40%. How about that? Uh, Oh, no hedging now, John. No hedging now. All right. I'll stay with (laughs) it. Stick to your guns. All right. And, you know, we shouldn't write them off. Um, I I almost stopped this segment without without giving him a mention. But Mark Jackson, uh, you know, the incumbent. I'd say 20%. All right, let's move on to our last topic of the day, John, and that is the WNBA. They had their all-star game last week. Great viewership. Uh, Great viewership comparatively. We have 860,000 for the all-star game. Uh, Didn't quite eclipse that, that vaunted million viewer mark that we've been eyeballing all year. Uh, What are your top line takeaways from the WNBA all-star game? It's just tough to, you know, really figure out how to characterize these numbers. 850,000 viewers on broadcast network TV is not a good number, period. It's not a good number for anything. 850,000 viewers isn't a good number for a rerun of Abbott Elementary on that Saturday night window. Having said that, it's a 16-year high. It's the most watched All-Star game since 2007. Candace Parker was not in the league. Cheryl Swoops might have been in that all-star game back in 2007, right? Uh, You know, the reality of the matter is you can't downplay a 16-year high, but this wasn't some kind of great audience. 850,000 viewers, it's primetime over-the-year broadcast television. 
you know, and, and the, the demo numbers weren't that great either, 0.16. It's a little bit tougher to make these comparisons now because Showbuzz is long gone. And I'm going to take a quick look here. Let's see what the previous Saturday night was. So uh, ABC, uh, 850,000 viewers and a 0.16 in 18 to 49. The previous Saturday, ABC at the UFC. So obviously they did a lot better, you know, uh, over a million viewers, 0.33 in the demo. Let's go back two weeks. ABC had America's Funniest Home Videos, nearly 2 million viewers, better number in the demo, 0.22. ABC had another episode of America's Funniest Home Videos, better number in the demo, 0.20, nearly 2 million viewers. And then a third episode of America's Funniest Home Videos, the 10 o'clock episode, 0.18 in the demo, better than the WNBA All-Star Game, and 1.53 million. So look, I'm not expecting the WNBA to compete on a viewership level. Right, because we know that all sports generally are, you know, more advantaged in the demos. If you look at some of these events, these non-sports events on broadcast TV, I mean, Nielsen tops out at sixty-five plus for midi for median age. Uh, for, so for the median age, Nielsen will give you, you know, twenty point one, forty point two. But once you get past sixty-five, they just say sixty-five plus. I'm guessing that for a lot of these events that are non-sports on broadcast TV you're really talking 70 something. Uh, and the reality of the matter is, as a result of that, you can rack up pretty high viewership totals for reruns and news magazines, even though the demo numbers aren't very good. I'm not expecting the WNBA to compete with AFV on viewership, but in the demo, I, I kind of am. And if AFV can get you a 0.22, a 0.20 and a 0.18, then I, I feel like the WNBA should be able to get you more than a 0.16. But, you know, part of this, too, is it's an all-star game. I mean, realistically, the, the WNBA audience, the people who watch the WNBA and care about it, if you were to ask them, was that a great game? They'd probably say no, because most basketball fans don't enjoy the all-star game. I tuned in. I hardly watched any of this. I watch more WNBA probably than most of the people who listen to this podcast. I watched maybe 15 minutes. It's an all-star game. You know, they started taking those four-point shots, and I was like, I'm not really interested in watching this abomination where you're just jacking up a four-point shot. I have no interest in that. Um, you know, and, and it makes sense. It's an all-star game. I, I understand why they put it there, because you can showcase all the league stars. My thought, if you're going to get primetime over-the-air exposure for the WNBA, you've got 12 teams. Maybe you do six games, and you do a whip around, Right. And so maybe the featured game is New York versus Vegas. And that's the game you go to for the most part, because those are the two biggest star teams. Uh, if that game turns out to be a little bit of a dog, you have other games going on that you can dip in on. Or, or even still, uh, you know, ESPN used to do their 24 hours of college basketball. Why not do a 12 hour or 14 hour marathon of WNBA games from, you know, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m.? Right? Well, I don't know about that because the audience is not at that level where you can do that. I think oh. you're a lot better off because if you're going for exposure and, and, and you want to, you know, you want to put these, these uh, athletes on, on a big stage, you know, that's one way to do it. That's one way to market it. The whip around. I, I like that idea as well. And I'm, I'm not shooting that down, but you know, if, if the goal here is to grow the audience, 12 hours of exposure on a broadcast network, just kind of axing one day. One day of programming, which yeah. I know you give you're giving me those eyes yeah. that like oh, that. Yeah. 
you know, the executives aren't going to like that, but you know, if they're, if they're serious about growing the sport and marketing these athletes, then maybe you need to do something like that and try to get it, not shove it down people's throats, but you know, kind of right. Like just give them a bigger platform. Well, I mean, I just think one, you're diluting the audience. I mean, it, you know, more people are going to tune in over the course of 12 hours than over the course of two, but you know, that's just the way it is in TV generally. I don't necessarily think that you're getting, uh, you know, you're getting an audience that's just dipping in, tuning, tuning into ABC and seeing what's on and then moving on to something else. I think if you create, you know, staggered starts, right? They're not all starting at the same time. You have one game start at 8.15, another at 8.25, another at 8.30, et cetera, et cetera, throughout the night. And you have the opportunity to showcase every team in the league. Right. And it's because the WNBA, nine times out of 10, they're producing these broadcasts anyway. It's not going to be a lot for ABC to be able to just run what CBS does. Maybe you have one ESPN production, all the rest are the WNBA productions in house. I, I had my own list of, you know, viewership comparisons for this game. And I, you did a pretty good job here, John. Um, I, I don't, I don't think I need to rub any more salt in the wound. It is a 16 year high. And so that, yeah. that should, that should be noted. And it was, but you're right. It, it's not the most impressive number, especially on broadcast, given the time slot. Hopefully we can see some growth in the WNBA. We know that the viewership potential is there. We saw how many people watch women's college basketball this past year. So it's just about tapping into that same audience and, and exposing people to it and, and creating fandoms for the for these franchises. Um, you know, the thing that to me symbolizes how unimpressive this audience is to me, viewership was only up 16% from last year. Last year's All-Star Game was a one o'clock Eastern time start, albeit on a Sunday. Sunday afternoon is Sunday afternoon uh, and, and stronger than Saturday night. But, you know, to me, when you go from 1 p.m. to prime time, even if it's from Sunday to Saturday, I'm expecting a little bit of a bigger bump than 16%. So to me, uh, I don't think this is the last time the WNBA will be on ABC in prime time. If You know, I, I don't see any reason why it would be. But uh, what the WNBA really needs to do more than anything, they need to end their season, we've said it a million times, before the NFL starts. And if they can get to Labor Day weekend, and that's when the finals are are underway or whatever, that's where you get your prime time slot. You know, there's there's wide open space in prime time in August, uh, and in even early September before the NFL starts. And that, that's not even getting into the network's prime time schedules coming up, uh, given the the writers and the actors strike. Um, I, I do real quick before we close out, you know, I like to, you know, close on a on a viewership prediction sometimes, John. Uh, we do have the FIFA Women's World Cup coming up this week. Uh, the U.S. kicks off against Vietnam on Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time. So a great time slot for the USA on Fox. What do you think the Women's World Cup number is going to be for that opening game? We know that there's some broad appeal here already, given past viewership history. Um, not the most intriguing matchup against Vietnam. It'll probably be a bit of a blowout, but this is the first time we're seeing the team in World Cup action. So what do you think that number is going to be? Well, uh, I think it'll be good. Now, you know, we should note for the Women's World Cup, the early rounds are not blockbuster numbers, right? The blockbuster numbers are for the final. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not going to be like with the men where, you know, the first round is going to get you, you know, 15, 16 or whatever. Uh, let me go back to that first match back in 2019. That was against Thailand, and I believe it was in prime time. Uh, this is 2019. So this would have been, uh, no, actually, it wasn't prime time, but it was 2.6 million. Uh, the 2015 first match was 3.3 million in prime time. I think that might have gone up against the NBA Finals, so I'm not sure. Uh, but that's kind of the range. So you're not going to see 10 million or whatever. You never know. You never know. Because, I mean, after what happened with the women's uh, NCAA, I mean, who knows what the, what the ceiling is right now. But I would say if you get 4 million, you're celebrating. But it's also the case people want to watch good games. USA Thailand, wasn't that like 16 nothing or something ridiculous? Like it was such a big blowout that people got mad back in, in 2019. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't actually remember the exact score, but I do remember it. It was certainly a blowout. I, yes, I will say, uh, lo looking forward past the Vietnam game, John, their second game is also a 9 p.m. time slot that following Wednesday, and it is a rematch of the 2019 final against the Netherlands. Do you expect a pretty big number for that? Yeah, that'll be a much more uh, compelling game. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I don't really follow soccer closely enough. I'm assuming that the U.S. will probably win pretty easily that first match. Keep in mind the time of year and where we are in TV. Four and five million viewers is pretty darn good right now for over-the-year broadcast television. Uh, and if you're Fox, you'll gladly take that. Certainly, and it'll be interesting to see if viewership tails off at all, given that. Some of the later round games will likely be at 3 a.m., 6 okay. a.m. So this is gonna be this is gonna be a rough go because of that. The third US match, uh, or, or the, the one against Portugal. Yeah, that's yeah. that's three in the morning. Yeah. You're not that that's an impossible thing to overcome. You can overcome seven in the morning, you can't overcome three in the morning. That's an awful time slot. Frankly, even seven is pretty bad. You want nine a.m. I, I don't know how Fox wasn't able to get those matches on at like nine and 10 o'clock. I, I don't know what time those are in Australia, but um, I think those are the first games of the day in Australia. So like the noon kickoffs, the 9 well, PM kickoffs. Here. I don't see any reason why a 10 o'clock start should be impossible for the final America tunes in for this more than other countries. I don't know how on earth Fox was unable to pull rank and get better time slots. There's three in prime time, the uh, Vietnam, the Netherlands, and then assuming the U.S. makes it, which would be pretty shocking if they didn't, I'm assuming that that match on August 5th will include them at 10 o'clock. Those matches will do pretty well, but this is going to be a dramatic decline from what we've seen, and it's not because there's less interest or whatever. It's because these are genuinely awful time slots. These are as bad as it gets. You can work with 7 and 8 in the morning. You can work with 11 o'clock at night. When you're getting to 1 and 4 a.m., those are the overnight hours, right? That's, you know, there's maybe on the West Coast for a 1 a.m. match, right? But even a 3 a.m. match is overnight everywhere in the mainland United States. Even on the West Coast, it's a midnight start. I honestly feel like this is worse, way worse than Qatar on the men's side because everyone assumed Qatar was going to be a ratings disaster because of the time of year, but the time slots were good. And because, I mean, the time slots weren't good. Let me rephrase that. But the time slots were not so bad. And because those time slots were what they were, 
Qatar avoided the NFL competition that everybody assumed was going to tank those ratings anyway. So this is a, a much worse situation from a ratings perspective than that. Well, John, I will say uh, bars here in Washington, D.C. will be open 24 hours a day for the Women's World Cup. So maybe a possible out-of-home viewership bump there. Who knows? Um, <laughs> if you're at a bar in Washington at 3 in the morning, you're in trouble. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I couldn't pull that off with my schedule. But um, one more quick soccer topic, John, while we're at it. Um, MLS, Messi, Apple. Uh, Messi had his opening ceremony, I guess you could say, uh, this past Sunday. I think he actually had a live streamed training today on Apple TV uh, this morning as we record on Tuesday. He's got his first match probably coming up this Friday, which will be in front of Apple's paywall. Uh, I'm curious, do you think we'll get any sort of indication about how many viewers that is going to draw with Apple TV? No, no we're not going to hear anything about that. You know, the only reason we heard anything with Amazon and Thursday Night Football is because there's so much money invested that they have to play in the Nielsen sandbox, right? They have to sell advertising the way that Fox does. They're spending a billion dollars. Uh, it's not the same case with, with Apple and the ratings for MLS on linear TV are, are not really that impressive anyway. So um, I, I don't think you'll see any numbers. Um, it is what it is. It, you know, this is the result of the TV deal that they have. We'll probably never really know what the interest level was compared to, you know, uh, other events. You know, that's fine. Um, I, I think uh, that kind of works out well for MLS because if it turned out that Messi's first game got, you know, 700,000 viewers or something, it wouldn't really look very good. So I think you're kind of, you're okay with it if you're MLS to not, to not uh, have the data out there. But uh, I, I do think there's a lot of interest clearly. Uh, I was uh, watching, uh, I guess, PTI the other day. They said that Miami's team isn't very good. I didn't even know that. Uh, you know, apparently Messi's going to the, uh, you know, uh, Detroit the Pistons. Commanders. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Detroit Pistons. I, I went with Washington Commanders for your benefit uh, of, <laughs> of MLS. But, you know, I mean, uh, we'll see. I mean, beyond anything else, I've said it before. We've seen this with uh, David Beckham. We've seen big stars come, maybe not at the level of Messi. But uh, he's not coming in his prime, and he's not going to a good team. So this is still sports, right? People want to watch players at their best playing for good teams. You know, at a certain point, when Michael Jordan was on the Wizards, you know, the Wizards were on TV all the time, but they weren't getting 1990s Bulls ratings, I can tell you that. The, the audience that was tuning in to Michael five years earlier in Chicago was not tuning in to Michael in 2002 in Washington right? Because people want to watch the players who are at their best on good teams. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I'll say, and I'll leave it at this, John, um, I, I think it's a bit of a missed opportunity to have him debut in the League's Cup and not in an MLS match for really the sole reason that it is not going to be on English language linear television. Um, if it were an MLS match, Fox probably could have come in and and picked that as one of their games. It could have been exposed to a broader audience. Um, this match will only be on Spanish language television here in the United States. Um, but like I said, in front of the Apple paywall, so you do not have to actually subscribe to MLS Season Pass to get this game. I think if uh, it is a successful venture for Apple, we'll we'll hear something, maybe not numbers or data, but we'll definitely hear about how successful it is or how many 
subscriptions it's driven or, or something in that regard yeah and i will say this you know univision that's a pretty good network to be on and the fact is you're going to get bigger numbers for univision than you are on fox anyway mm-hmm. you just are uh so there I, I hadn't even thought about that aspect we will see some good numbers there presumably if there are good numbers to be had we will see good numbers uh from univision because that's the primary network Univision uh, for Spanish uh, for for well that's the primary network for soccer viewership in this country is Univision, even in, in in the Gold Cup the U.S. matches drew better on Univision than on Fox, that kind of makes me rethink because obviously if Univision is going to be airing it, then we will see some some numbers of significance for that game. Yeah, and I, I think um, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is just because it's League's Cup, right? Um, yeah, MLS games do is... not air on Univision, to exactly. my knowledge. Yeah, and you know the other thing too, this is Liga MX. Liga MX is a heck of a lot more popular than MLS. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Those numbers might look pretty good because people are tuning in for you know Cruz Azul, right? Yeah. That's who they're playing, right? Yep. yep. That might be the driving force because Liga MX is a heck of a lot more popular in this country than Major League Soccer is, at least in terms of TV ratings. All right, John, that's a good place to leave that topic. Why don't you close the show out? Well, that's another week in the books. Thanks for listening. For Drew, I'm John. We'll see you around. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.